Would you open your Bible with me this morning to the book of Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 4 now. Ephesians chapter 4, and we've been going through this book. It's been such a, an incredible time in it. And now we open this morning, this Sunday, to the second half of the book. The second half of the book of Ephesians. Where we find a, a, now a beautiful balance in this book, this epistle that Paul wrote. The balance between doctrine and duty. If you like taking notes, would you write that down? It's a, important. We're going to find ourselves today in the portion of application from doctrine to duty. From our riches in Christ, all that we are, all who we are in Christ, to our responsibility. And if you've been with us the last several weeks, you notice that first, in the first three chapters of this epistle, what Paul speaks of is our wealth as believers. Who we are, what we possess in Christ Jesus, what is our inheritance, the riches of the saints, that we have been seated in heavenly places. But now from chapters 4 and 5, he speaks of our walk, from wealth to walk. And then later in chapter 6, he's going to speak about warfare. So this book divides itself from wealth to walk and then to warfare. And here in this portion of chapter 4 and 5, we see how we're called to live rightly. Now, after explaining what God did for us in, in the first three chapters, we naturally now want to serve the Lord. We naturally want to obey Him out of gratitude. In fact, it really makes a difference what you believe. Have you ever noticed that? That what you believe, it makes a, an incredible difference because it determines what you, how you behave. What you believe determines how you behave. I like what A.W. Tozer said when he said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? Because it makes all the difference about how we behave. So the better we understand doctrine, the better we understand the Bible, the easier it is for us to obey its duties. And that's exactly why he's explained them. He's unpacked them. He's unfolded them for us. And now after these three chapters, the first call, the first responsibility for the church is to walk in holiness and to walk in unity. So he's going to explain in this chapter, walk in holiness, walk in unity, walk using your gifts, and explain that our unity is in Christ Jesus. This message today is very needed for the church, because the church today needs to be united. That's exactly how the Spirit of God works, through the unity of the body of Christ, through the unity of the church. That's why we've titled today's message, Let's walk together. Would you turn to your neighbor and say, let's walk together. Let's walk together. Let's read here Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all loneliness and gentleness, with long-suffering Bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now, as we approach your word, that you would speak to us, God, that we would give it the respect and the reverence that it deserves, that it is supreme above our opinions, above our thoughts, above any type of human wisdom. Lord, that we would surrender and submit to what you have to say today, Lord, in regards to unity, 
that we as your church, as your bride, would walk together. So we pray this all in your name, in Jesus' name, and the church together said, amen. Now the first call here we see is the call to unity in verse 1. The call to unity. And here Paul introduces now this next message that he gives to them in this portion this way. He says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. Now notice, after having explained this transition here, this foundation here of the exhortation, after three chapters of of spelling out our glorious riches in Christ Jesus in detail. Now that you know this, not in ignorance, therefore, because you know this, because of your riches, because you've been set free, because you are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I, prisoner of the Lord. Now circle that in your Bible. I, prisoner of the Lord. Here Paul was writing from prison. But he's saying, I'm a prisoner for serving the Lord. I'm not a prisoner of Nero. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. And all that's happened to me has happened by the permission of God. You know what that is called? Sovereignty. Everything that's happened to me has happened by the permission of God. Wherever he found himself, he knew that whatever took place in his life first had to go through the presence of God. And he turns that prison, he converts that prison into a palace. He considers himself shut up with God and becomes a prayer warrior as we see him pray throughout this epistle. He identifies himself as one who is enslaved because of the cause of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 1, he says, my chains are in Christ. Now you see here the confidence that he is right where he needs to be, serving the Lord, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He continues and he says this, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you. And here is the exhortation because in chapter 4 and 5, he gives us and he presents to us different walks. Exhortation, walk in wisdom. Walk in love. Here the first one is walk worthy. And he says, I beseech, which means I beg you. It's an exhortation. It's an encouragement. This is an admonition or an instruction. I'm begging you. I'm exhorting you. I'm I'm admonishing you with instruction to walk. The Greek word walk, it's that word peripatel. What does it mean to walk? It means to conduct one's life. It has to do with behavior. To lead a life progressing. To lead a life progressing or one's behavior. I beseech you to walk. That your life, regarding how you live and lead your life. Now this is not a human command that you see Paul saying but this is a divine compulsion that's coming directly from the Lord. This is out of God's love that urges us to live a life for his glory. To live a life for his glory. And notice what he says, I beseech you, I instruct you to walk, to live your life, or to lead a life progressing now, worthy. Worthy. You see, our walk as believers has to be a walk that is worthy. This word worthy means literally equal weight. It was almost as if you would go out to the market in that time, and when you would purchase something, they would put it on scales to see uh, the weight, to measure the weights. That your life would be of equal weight to your calling. <laughs> Isn't that amazing how he describes it? That your life, your walk, would match your calling accordingly. That your conduct and your calling should be equally balanced. Do you see that there? That your calling and your conduct should be equally now balanced. In fact, what he's telling here the Ephesians, now he says, bring your practice up to your position. You know your position in Christ Jesus. That you're sanctified, that you're separated that you are now given unto the Lord. Now bring your practice up to your position. 
Live a life in obedience to what God's called you to do. God's word. This is why he says here in that verse 1, to the calling which you were called. How you've been called, you've been called to God to live in obedience to his word. And notice, we don't walk worthy. When we think about this, we don't walk worthy so that God will love us. We walk worthy because he already loves us. And our walk is motivated out of gratitude and at a desire to please him, not to earn his love. We are responding here after three chapters to God's grace, responding to God's love, responding to God's riches and mercy in obedience. Do you remember in Romans chapter 12 when he does the same thing, Paul? He says, I beseech you, I urge you, brethren, because of the mercies of God, because of everything that God's done for you. Realize everything that God's done for you. I I instruct you now that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. This is our response now, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that which is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So what is Paul saying both in Romans chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4? That you would prove with your life the reality of your calling. That you would prove with your life the reality of your calling. What does he want us to do? Live up to that calling. You have a responsibility. It's not just enough that you would know it or that you would experience it, but that you would live up to it. Because of your faith, now let's see your walk. Your live and your calling is now to live a life of holiness. So he's saying here, a believer's life should match the excellency of Christ's calling for us. It it shouldn't be something completely different. And notice in 1 John 2, verse 6, the apostle speaks of following the example of Christ. He says this, he who says he abides in him ought himself to walk just as he walked. How many times have we heard, you know, you can talk the talk, but can you walk it now? Here he's saying in 1 John 2, 6, the apostle now, John, he says, he who says he abides in him also ought to walk just as he walked. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, we should walk fully pleasing him, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Walk fully pleasing him. Walk just as he walked. Follow his example. But you ought to walk worthy because this is the will of God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it says this, For this is the will of God. Write this down, your sanctification. What is God's will for our lives? Our sanctification. That we would consistently be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That we would be separated now and walk a life that is worthy to our calling. That is your position. That's your calling. Now let your life match that calling. How is it that we ought to live and walk a worthy life? Well, there are certain necessary Christian graces and attributes that he's going to explain to us here from verses 2 to verse 6 as to how and, and, and why we should walk a life that is worthy. Now notice all of the things that he mentions from verses 2 all the way to verse 5 and even 6, they lead to the concept of unity and to the concept of oneness. Walk worthy. And if you're walking worthy, what it's going to produce is going to produce unity in the body of Christ and unity in the church. This is God's primary command, that we would walk in unity. What did he say to his disciples in John chapter 13? By this they will know that you are my disciples because you have love for one another. When we are one and we are expressing that oneness as a church, as a congregation, as a body here, you know what happens? We can then manifest Christ to the world. The church cannot manifest Christ to the world if it is divided. The church cannot manifest Christ to the world if there are divisions within the church. Now notice, no other human institution 
No other human organization in the world can do what Christ is calling us to do. It's only by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit and the love of God that we're able to walk in this indivisible unity. It's supernatural. It's only possible through the love of Christ. Jesus himself in John chapter 17, he prayed for his disciples and he said this, Lord, I pray that they would be one, they would have perfect unity just as the Father and I are one. How sad is it that oftentimes you see more unity in secular organizations than you do in the church? That should not be so. The world should be looking at the church and understanding that there is a supernatural unity by the power of the Holy Spirit, now by the love of God that is only possible through Him. And this is exactly why He's saying that you walk a life that is worthy in holiness. That is the call to unity, but notice from verse 2 and 3 now, the character of unity. You know you truly are walking in unity when you are displaying these characteristics, these attributes, these attitudes. And in verse 2 and 3, he says that you ought to walk humbly, gently, and patiently. (laughs) You want to have unity in the church? You want to have unity in your marriage as believers? What about unity in the workplace? You want to possess and protect the unity that that Christ has called the church, then you ought to walk humbly, gently, and patiently. And this is how he describes it there in verse 2, with all lowliness. Now notice, these virtues, virtues that he's about to explain, they don't come naturally. This is not something we naturally do. These are only by the Spirit. These are only out of a byproduct of love. These are only out of a byproduct of the fruits of the Spirit. And it says that you would walk with all lowliness. What is lowliness? With all humility. With all humility. You know what humility? It is, it, it is such a special virtue and quality for the Christian. In fact, it's been said before is that humility it's, is that grace that when you know you have it, you've lost it. Just think about that. Humility is that grace that when you know you have it, you've lost it already. Humility is knowing who you are, but also humility is knowing who you're not. It's not really thinking less of yourself. It's not saying, well, you know, I think less of myself. I'm truly a humble person. That is not humility. Humility is thinking of yourself less. (laughs) Where you don't think of yourself, it's it's an unconsciousness a self-forgetfulness where you you don't think of yourself. You're not self-centered. You're other-centered. You're selfless. So in order to walk worthy, you must walk with all lowliness. You see, lowliness had a bad association to the minds of the people there. And lowliness is an attitude or a virtue of the mind. Remember that. It's of the mind. It means putting others first, or considering others better. That's what it means to be lowly. Do you want to walk worthy? you want to cultivate an environment where unity is preserved and protected? Then you must walk in lowliness, in humility. Isn't that the example as to how Jesus walked? In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, it tells us this. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Nothing that you do, you would do it for yourself. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. What is it that we always want to do? We want to think about ourselves. We want to esteem ourselves better than everyone else. In fact, it says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Lowliness means this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Lowliness is the attitude of the mind. Notice, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Lowliness is an attitude of the mind where you humble yourself. Humble yourself. 
I love what Andrew Murray said. He said, humility is the bloom and the beauty of holiness. Would you remember that? Humility is the bloom and the beauty of holiness. The chief mark of our counterfeit holiness is the lack of humility it produces. You want to know if you're truly walking in holiness? How much humility is your holiness producing? That's when you know that your holiness is true because of the amount of humility it produces that you are thinking of others better than yourself or preferring others or putting others first. What happens when we, we live in a culture, in a society that everything is to do with what? Self, right? With self. Imagine you're, you're with your friends. You go out. You take a, pic, a group picture. Can I see that picture? Who's the first person you're looking for? You're looking for yourself. You're looking to see if I look good in that picture. In fact, we've become so self-absorbed that when we take a picture, we don't say, let's take a picture. What are we saying now? Let's take a selfie. (laughs) And then your phone does you a favor because on its own, it puts all the pictures of yourself on its own category. Do you see how now counterculture this attitude is? If you want to preserve unity, stop thinking about yourself. Stop thinking about yourself. If you're always the center, if you are self-centered, you'll never know what true unity is. The self-centered person will never experience unity because they're always thinking about themselves. When you put yourself first, you're going to find yourself always in divisions, in schisms. Those are not for the body of Christ. And notice, not only this, but lowliness, humility, lowliness produces gentleness. Let's keep reading here. Verse two, it says, and gentleness. What, is to be, what does it mean to be gentle? It means not to be pushy. We're designed to always trying to defend yourself or your own rights or now advance your own agenda. In fact, that word gentleness is the word that we see or read in Scripture as meekness. Meekness. Now, I want you to know meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. It means strength under control. That's what it means to be gentle. It means to have strength, but you harness it, you put it under control. Just think about this. It it, it takes a a true, strong person to display complete self-control. It takes a truly strong person to display self control and restraint in the face of extreme provocation. It's a fruit of the Spirit, gentleness. Have you ever been in a situation when someone's provoking you and you could respond to them with an accusation? You could respond to them with, with now an allegation, but instead you remain quiet now in a spirit of meekness? Why? Because you are preserving the unity? You see, gentleness means that it means that we can be happy and content. Notice this, when we are not in control. (laughs) When we're not in control. When we're not steering things our way. A person that is displaying this attitude, this virtue of gentleness, they're not aggressive. They're not controlling. You're not threatened by other people or you're not easily offended. Would you remember that? You're not easily offended. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus gives us that example. He says, take my yoke upon you. You know what that yoke was where they would put uh, that, that wooden beam that they would put between the two oxen to carry the weight and thresh the floor? In fact, it says, take my yoke, put my yoke on you and learn from me. Can we learn from him today what it means to be gentle? Learn from me. Let me teach you, he says. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and then you will find rest for your souls. What is it that Jesus wants you to learn from him? What is it that he wants you to to teach you? He wants to teach you how to be gentle. How to be gentle, not aggressive. But notice he says humbly, gently, and then 
patiently. Notice how he describes this now. With long suffering. With long suffering. If you want to protect the unity of the church, his bride, which we all should desire to do, we must live a life that is worthy of our calling, displaying the fruits of humility, of gentleness, but also of patience, long-suffering. You know what it carries the idea or the meaning of? Having a long fuse. (laughs) Not having a short fuse. You see, oftentimes we're in a conversation, we have a very short fuse, we blow up, we explode now. Long-suffering means enduring patiently with one another. That you're willing now to suffer long so that the inevitable wrongs that take place and, and occur between God's people and God's family will not work against God's purpose now in bringing things together in Jesus. That you're looking out for the greater purpose now of His church so that you're going to say, I'm going to suffer long. I'm only going to make allowance for each other's faults. I'm going to make allowance for one another's shortcomings. That's what we have to ask ourselves in order to walk worthy. Are you long-tempered or are you short-tempered? When it comes to people, are people scared of talking to you? You know, there are those people that, that every time you talk to them, you have to, it's almost like you're walking on eggshells because you don't want something bad to happen. You want an argument to begin. <laughs> Well, what what does the Bible call us to be? To be long-suffering. You see, when we become impatient, that means that we no longer are suffering long for one another. And a lot of times we become impatient when we don't get our way or when someone does something or when someone says something to irritate us. And then we become very impatient with them and no longer are we walking worthy. Why? Because we've become impatient with him. We've put ourselves first. Jesus never responded with impatience. He never responded with impatience. And you might find yourself in a situation where the person keeps now wronging you. What does the Bible call you to do? To be long-suffering. To be long-suffering. In fact, notice what it produces. Notice what it call, he calls now in verse 2. Bearing with one another in love. That because you would walk humbly, gently, and patiently, you would be able to bear with one another in love. It speaks of forbearance. What does it mean to bear with one another? He's saying, put up with one another because you love one another. It's the ability to to endure discomfort without fighting back, always having to fight back, always having to have an answer. No, show these attributes. Bear with one another so that you can now cultivate unity. And I want you to know something that you would remember today. If you truly want to preserve the unity, then forbearance always produces forgiveness. Forgiveness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, it says this, Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Don't just put up with one another, also forgive one another. If you want to live a life that is worthy to the calling which you were called, there is no room for your pride, there is no room for your ego. You know what you're called to do? To forgive one another. In fact, he says, if anyone has a complaint against one another, you have a a complaint against that person? You think that person has offended you? You think that person personally has wronged you? Even as Christ forgave you, you need to go forgive that person as well. We have the reputation of saying, someone wronged me, I'm going to cut them off. (laughs) No, that's not what God's called you to do. He's saying, with all forbearance, bearing with one another, forgive one another. Just think about what the Lord has done for us. Romans 2 verse 4 says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness? Are you despising the riches of God's goodness and forbearance and long-suffering. God is displaying goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering towards us. In fact, it says, not knowing that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. Why have we had the opportunity to repent? We had the opportunity to repent because God was good. Because God is good. Because God was suffering long with us. Because God was bearing with us. 
And he's given us the opportunity to repent. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 4, that love chapter that we all know. What does it say? Love suffers long. <laughs> love suffers long. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Long-suffering here and bearing with one another is the spirit that has the power. You may have the power to take revenge, but you never do because it's the characteristic of having a generous and forgiving heart. I want you to know, maybe you're in a situation where you have the power to have revenge over that person. But instead, you know what God's called you to forgive and to be, have a generous heart. Don't retaliate. Don't take it out on people. That's not what Christ would do. That's not what Christ has done for you. In fact, we often ask God to be patient with our own failings and failures. And Lord, would you just be patient with us? Would you just show grace with us? But then when it's our turn to exercise the same type of patience for, our, for other people, we don't want to exercise it then. Why is it that oftentimes we think that we deserve grace in our lives for the very things that we don't give grace to other people for? That we don't give the grace to other people for? You see, you truly know the measure and the depth that you have for another person. You know the depth and the measure of love that you have for another person by the amount of patience you're willing to extend. You know the amount of love by the amount of patience you're willing to extend. When you want to extend patience and suffer long and give them more patience and be more forgiving, it demonstrates the love of Christ in us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, what did Paul tell the church? Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who rule unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. Would you be gentle? Would you be humble? Would you be patient with other people? You know what happens? It comes out of the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and it produces joy, peace, patience. What else does it do? Kindness, gentleness, self-control. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, it says, and above all these things put on what? Fervent love. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Well, you don't know what's happened between us. I don't need to know. The love of God covers a multitude of sins. The love of God that has covered your sins will also cover theirs. I remember it was just last week that I was getting ready to come to church on Sunday morning. And, and the, I always ask the Lord in the morning, God, what is it that you want me to take away or, or maybe add to the message uh, that you would have for your people and, and and the Lord told me something, but he said, don't add it to your notes yet. Maybe add it next week. And it really was something clear. It reminds me, the Lord reminds me of the Pharisees and the scribes where they take that woman out in public and they accuse her for catching her in the act of adultery. And the Lord goes and he says, they want to test them. And you know what he says? He grabs a stone and he says, he who is without sin among you, throw the first stone. And I really believe that the Lord is telling that us this morning. That if this applies to you, then put the stones down. Put the stones down. You want to know why humility is the first in the list that he gives us here in verse 2 and 3? Because pride destroys unity. Pride destroys unity. Unity. And notice how he describes verse 3. Endeavoring, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Walking worthy of the calling which you have been called demonstrates itself in love. It demonstrates itself in protecting the unity and guarding the unity. In fact, you're going to see the people that desire unity, they're going to be walking in humility. They're going to be walking now with long-suffering, gentleness, patience, and meekness now, not wanting to get even. And notice what it says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Protect the unity of the Spirit. Write that down. Protect the unity of the Spirit. Guard it. 
And, and, and notice how he de- describes it. He uses this word endeavor. Endeavor is that verb. It's a present participle verb. What does that mean? It means that we must constantly continue to endeavor. We must never stop. This is an action we must always continue to do. In fact, what it means, endeavor, it's also a word used for studying. In that time when they would use the word endeavor, they would say, would you endeavor? Would you study? Would you apply yourself to these things? That's what it means to endeavor. I mean, think about it. We are in the school of of God. And in his school, the chief subject of his school, the chief subject of his curriculum is Christ. To, be, to learn to be more like Christ. We're studying, we're endeavoring to be more like Jesus. And when we apply our minds to the problems in his school that he sets before us, we're able to learn how to deal with them his way, not our way. Deal with the problems that God puts before you as you're endeavoring and studying the curriculum to be Christ-like his way and not your way. You know, oftentimes those problems are, they're practical problems. They're like getting along with other people in a Christ-like way. Getting along with other people in a Christ-like way. In his school, notice what he does. He tests us to evaluate our progress in becoming Christ-like. Is God today putting a test before you? to test you whether or not you are Christ-like, that you're going to deal with that problem in a Christ-like way. And it could be something practical. So he says, now, there in verse 3, endeavor, be eager to maintain. Make every effort. That's what he's saying. But look at that powerful word right after. He says, to keep the unity of the Spirit. It doesn't say to create the unity. We're not called to create unity. We're called to keep the unity, to cultivate the unity that the Spirit has also already began. That's what he says, to keep it, to cultivate it. Our responsibility, your responsibility as a church is to recognize the unity in the Spirit, to guard that unity, to protect that unity, to not disturb the unity, protect the unity. If everywhere you go, there's a problem, guess who the problem is? You. If everywhere you go, there's an argument, guess who the problem is? You. Endeavor to keep the unity. There are some people, I don't know why, they just are, they, they are not happy unless there's problems. That is not walking worthy of the calling which you were called. And what does he say? He's saying this, be eager to protect the unity. It's not a spirit of competition. It's a spirit of unity. We're not against one another. We're for one another in the body of Christ. And the fruit of the Spirit of Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 produces the unity of the Spirit here now in Ephesians chapter 4. And then when the unity of the Spirit is produced, guess what we can do? We can do Galatians 5.16. We then can walk in the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit produces the unity of the Spirit so then we can walk in the Spirit. You see how this is so important? We have a responsibility to protect the unity. What does the Bible tell us? As much as as it is possible or as much as you have power, be at peace with one another. As much as you have power, be at peace with one another. In fact, notice what he says there in verse 3 now. In the bond of peace. Make every attempt to resolve for peace by having forgiveness and humility as an attitude that you desire. So right now, you have a problem in your marriage? Humility, forgiveness, patience. If you're having a problem with your coworkers, here is the answer. Sometimes we think, well, let's, let's deal with things in, in a very practical, protocol way. It doesn't matter where, you can be at work. You know what works? We don't live as Christians by an HR handbook. We live the Christians by the very word of God, by the spirit of God. You know what we have to do? Forgive. We have to learn to forgive. In the relationships that you have with Christians, forgive. 
That's the only way that unity is possible. And notice what happens when the peace of God is ruling in your heart, then we can build unity. Because you have the peace of God ruling in your heart. If there are problems between you and God in your heart, then there's going to be problems between you and other people. That's why Colossians chapter 13, verse 14 says this, but of all these, above all these things, put on love, which is the bond or the glue of perfection, of unity. And let the peace of God rule in your heart. Let the peace of God control your heart. Let it be the umpire of your life to which you also called in one body and be thankful. In one body and be thankful. There was a seasoned pastor that went to a newly wedded couple and said this, it's great that you love each other, but if you're going to be happy in a marriage, you got to work things out. <laughs> now, how true is that? It's great that you love each other, but if you're going to be happy in a marriage, then you got to work things out. How do we work things out? By walking in humility, by forgiving one another, by being long-suffering. The reason why there's wars on the outside is because of the war on the inside. Because of the war on the inside. Write this down, James chapter 3, verse 13, as we look at these verses. Who is wise and understanding among you? You think you're so wise? You think that you know a lot? You have experience? Know this. Let him show. Let me show me your wisdom by good conduct and that your works, that everything you do is done in meekness of wisdom. You think you have wisdom? Show me your wisdom by how you apply it in a very gentle way. But if you're bitter and envy and self-seeking in your heart, then don't lie against the truth and boast. This is the wisdom that does not descend from above, but is earthly. You know the wisdom that is from the earth, the demonic wisdom that he describes? It's sensual, it's demonic. For where there is envy, self-seeking, now notice what it says, exists confusion and every evil thing is there. You, you think it's, if it's confusing, if it's self-seeking, that is not wisdom from the Lord. That's wisdom of the earth. But the wisdom that is from above, notice this, true wisdom, spiritual wisdom that is from above, notice how it describes it's pure. It's peaceable. The wisdom from above is gentle. What else is it? It's willing to yield. It's full of mercy and good fruits without partiality. And here's, here's how he ends, without hypocrisy. Walking worthy and walking with the wisdom of God. Notice how he describes it. He describes it as one that is displayed in humility. In humility. And it's not a structural unity that he's talking about. But it's a, a spiritual unity that requires submission. Because oftentimes what disturbs the unity, as we look at these verses, is vengeance. What disturbs the unity is pride, it's ego, it's unforgiveness. It's been said before that in the body of Christ, God is the God of addition. God is the God of subtraction. But God is not the God of division. He's not the God of division. And why can we have unity? Because of what we share in common. What we share in common is greater than anything that divides us. If you truly are walking with the Lord. It's a unity that's built now on Bible truth. Because any other type of unity that is not built on Bible truth, rock solid doctrine now, is standing on very shaky foundation. In, in fact, know this. Unity at the expense of integrity or at the expense of truth is not real unity. If you're going to forfeit integrity and forfeit truth, don't call that unity, call that compromise. It's not unity, it's compromise. So he gives us here from verses now four and six, we're gonna go through these verses quickly, seven basic spiritual realities, seven basic spiritual elements that unite us all as true Christians. These are the things that unite us. Know these things. I love that it, there, there are seven of them. It speaks of perfection. We share these seven qualities that unite us to perfect unity. 
Now from verses 4 to 6, he speaks of the grounds for unity. The grounds for unity. That we're united, number one, verse 4, in the Spirit. Notice what he says. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, in one hope of your calling. He gives us three reasons there. Number one, one body. There's one church. You know, a lot of times we say, well, there are many churches. There are, there are many congregations, but we're one church under the head who is Christ. And there are many local bodies that God established across the world. But guess what? There's only one body. It's called the body of Christ. And everyone in that body looks different. It's, it's a very diverse body. Not everyone in the body looks the same. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, what does Paul say? That there's some are the head, some are the ears, some are the eyes, some are the foot. And we need one another. We're not asking for uniformity. We're asking for unity. That means that we're going to be different, but we're called to now be one body together. The feet can't say to the head, you know what, I don't need you. Or the eye can't say to the mouth, you know what, I don't, you talk too much, I don't need you. We need one another to function as the body. There is one body, Romans 12, 5. So we being many, we're different, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. There's one body. This is what unites us. There's also one spirit. Verse 4, it's the Holy Spirit that dwells in the believers. It's the same Holy Spirit. It's not a different Holy Spirit. We've been born again. The same Holy Spirit dwells in the believers, and now we belong now to one another. Number three, there's the same hope of your calling. Now think about this. It speaks of our glorification, that one day we are going to have a future together in heaven. <laughs> Think about that when you're, th when you're in, at odds with a brother or sister. We have a future together. So stop fighting. <laughs> we have the same eternal destiny. <laughs> in fact, what is our future together? The return of Christ that he's going to take his church. And the Holy Spirit is a guarantee for the hope of our calling that one day we will be to have at heaven. Now notice this, the believer who realizes the existence that there is one body, who walks in the spirit now, the same spirit now, and who's looking for the return of Jesus Christ is going to be a peacemaker and not a troublemaker. A peacemaker. But here, number four, it says also, in the next verse, verse five, we have one Lord. We confess the same Lord, Jesus Christ. So why are we fighting? Why are we dividing? Our Lord Jesus is the same Lord who died for us, who lives for us. One day will come again for us. Romans 10, 9, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One Lord. In 1 Corinthians 12, 5, I'm almost done. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. But the same Lord. Now, how is it that we can claim to obey the same Lord, but not we're not able to walk together in unity? How do you claim the same Jesus, but you can't walk in unity? Notice as he continues, one faith. This is incredible here. One faith. What kind of faith? It's a saving faith. Maybe we defer in traditions with different denominations, maybe we defer in, in, in even some non-essential doctrines, but you know what brings us together? Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in the body of Christ. We can't be those that are walking around self-righteousness that we're right and everyone else is wrong. <laughs> we don't belong to the body of Calvary Chapel, we belong to the body of Jesus Christ. That's the true body. And then it says one baptism. Notice how he describes it. Well, we, we've been baptized into new life together. We've all separated ourselves in identification that the baptism of the spirit and at the, of water at conversion places into the body. And remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, now I say this to each of you because you guys are all divided, Corinth. One of you says I'm from Apollo. Others say I'm from Apollos. Others say that I'm from Cephas. Others say I'm from Christ. Let me ask you this, is Christ divided? No, he's not, then why are you? Was Paul crucified for you? 
Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? We're called to unity. And notice, finally, verse 6, the seventh element that brings us together, notice, is one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We belong to the same family. We're loving and serving the same Father. So we should be able to walk in unity. Notice, he says, who is above all. He is sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's in control. Who is through you all. What does that mean? He's providential. His actions are working through us. And he's in you all. He's indwelling every single believer. God knows what he's doing, where he's going, and how he's going to accomplish his purposes. Now, each of these areas are greater than any potential difference. Each of these areas are greater than any potential difference. Now, what can we do to protect the unity as we close today? What can we do? Some here today need to repent, and others need to forgive. Maybe right now there's a division taking place between you and a brother or a sister. Some need to forgive, and others need to repent. Because as long as self is at the center, you'll never know unity. You'll never know unity. And if you, can't, and if you have to, forgive someone today. Forgive them in your heart. If you have to, ask for forgiveness today. Why? So that you can keep short accounts with God. Why do you want to hold on to that? Keep short accounts with God. Repent today and pursue reconciliation. Love them. Bring them back into unity. I love, you know, my, my two kids. One is four and one is one. And Micah, he's one. He just learned to walk. And every time we go out to eat somewhere, he, he likes to go and explore. And he leaves our table and he goes walking around. And he's going into everyone else's table and smiling and all of that. And, but his older brother, who's four, Caleb, what he's recently started to do is he goes after his brother. He picks him up and he brings him back to the table. And the Lord showed me something interesting. Isn't that how the body of Christ should be? That when one is wandering off, the brother comes, picks him up, and brings him back to the table. The table of communion. Can we pray?